Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Eve Lazarus. Eve's book, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most intriguing murder and missing persons cases is a finalist for the 2023 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. On this episode, Eve talks about the challenges of writing about cold cases and the need for transparency from the RCMP and other police forces around cold cases. This episode starts with a reading from Cold Case BC. Sort of as an understanding of why I picked this one, I wrote Cold Case Vancouver, in um, which is also actually up for this award, um, back in 2015. And at that time, I'd really hoped that a number of these cases, that all one of these cases would be solved. And and unfortunately, no, that, that they haven't been. The closest that came to that was the Babes in the Woods when they identified the, the two little boys. And the Babes in the Woods were um, the two little skeletons that were found in Stanley Park back in the early 50s. And um, they had been bludgeoned to death. And it's been this sort of enduring Vancouver mystery for decades and decades. And uh, uh, so it was so great to see them get their names back after all this time. And I ended up, I'd written about it in Cold Case Vancouver, and I ended up using it as my first chapter for Cold Case BC. So I thought I'd just do a bit of a reading on that one. So this is chapter one, The Babes in the Woods. I've been obsessed with the Babes in the Woods case ever since I first heard about the murders on a visit to the Vancouver Police Museum in the late 1980s. It was a breakfast meeting for a tourism organisation called Vancouver AM, and we drank coffee and ate croissants in the old autopsy suite. Wandering through the former morgue, which hosted true crime exhibits, it was heartbreaking to see two tiny skulls on display, two little kids that nobody had missed or at least reported missing. Over the years, I've connected with others who are equally obsessed with the fate of the two children. Some were independent researchers, and for others, it was their job to find out who murdered the boys, and more importantly, to find out who they were. Laurie Zedjian, coroner, a long line of Vancouver homicide detectives, former CKNW reporter George Garrett, and Kat Thorson, artist and researcher, have all worked diligently to give these boys their names back. And they've all generously given me their time so that I could write about these tragic unsolved murders. By the second week of February 2022, I was able to confirm with two different sources that the Vancouver Police Department had the names of the babes in the woods. This was huge, but it was all I had. The police weren't releasing any more information at that point. And then a few days later, a young lady named Ali contacted me and said that a Vancouver police detective had been to see her mother, Cindy. The detective had given Cindy the devastating news that her uncles, Derek and David D'Alton, were murdered probably in 1947 and that they were the infamous Babes in the Woods. Neither Ali nor her mother, Cindy, had heard the story of the Babes in the Woods. When Ali went online to do some research, she came across my podcast. Ali sent me photos that she'd scanned from the family album, and it was incredible to put faces to these two little boys. 
There was a school photo from Henry Hudson Elementary in Kitsilano, taken around 1946 or 1947. It showed Derek, the older brother, a smiling little blonde boy. There were a few photos of David, who had dark hair and features, standing and sitting with his older sister, Diane. And there were some with David and his mother, Eileen, and her twin sister, Doreen. There are houses in the background, one of them probably being the address the family lived at in Kitsilano during that period. Over that weekend, I worked with Ali to put together a post for my blog, Every Place Has a Story. Ali's mother, Cindy, was in her early 20s when she first heard that she had two missing uncles. It was back in the early 1980s and she was looking at photos in the family album of her mother with two boys, the same photos Ali had sent to me. Cindy asked her mother, Diane, what had happened to her brothers, but Diane refused to talk about it. She would just cry. Eventually, Cindy was told that the family had been very poor and Derek and David had been taken away by child protection services because their mother couldn't provide for them. Diane had remained with her mother. Later, she told Cindy stories of having to jump out of the windows of places where they were living when the landlord came looking for his rent. Shortly before Diane died in 2020, Cindy wanted to find out more about her ancestry, so she took a swab from her mother and sent it off to My Heritage. She discovered that Eileen's father was Métis. Cindy's daughter, Ali, then decided to search for her great-uncles, hoping to find them still alive, or if not, their children or grandchildren. She sent her own DNA to 23andMe. When detectives first paid Cindy a visit, they told her that they couldn't find any records to indicate that the boys were taken into custody of child protection services, as she'd been told. Police have always believed that the boys were killed by their mother, who covered them up with her coat. The problem that I have with this is that there are other family members who had money, and they would have known the boys, or at least been aware of their existence, and of Eileen's precarious financial situation. Why didn't they help? And what about the fathers? Eileen's children had at least two, possibly three fathers, who at the time of writing still hadn't been identified. When asked at the media conference if the mother was still the prime suspect, Inspector Dale Weedman said, I think we have to make that assumption, yes. She would definitely be a person of interest if this case had occurred today. Naturally, we would be looking at the mother, yes. But Cindy doesn't believe that for a second. She says her grandmother Eileen was a lovely gentlewoman who babysat the kids, loved animals, and often seemed sad. Eileen died in 1996 at the age of 78. Thanks, Eve. All right. My first question for you is, who are you? <laughs> who am I? Um, I'm a reporter, I guess a former reporter. I haven't worked as a reporter for a little while now. An author. Um, I write history, true crime. And uh, I do a podcast called Cold Case Canada. It's fantastic that you started with uh, the Babes in the Woods, because that was kind of where I started when I was writing down my questions, because it seems like there are stories or cases that kind of stick with you and stick with other people, too. That kind of becomes a pattern where people just can't let go of these stories of these characters, um, these people who've who've died uh, or have gone missing. What is it about the Babes in the Woods that you know, really stuck with you? 
Well, I think, as I, you know, sort of wrote about in the book, when I first saw them at the police museum, I don't know if I then realised this at the time, but I was looking at their actual skulls. I mean, can you imagine putting these kids' skulls on display? And they're actually at the PE as well for a couple of years as an exhibit. And I, I just, I, I think that one really hit me. It was before I had my own children. And I think it became even more poignant later on when I had my kids. But it was just, a, how did two kids go missing? No one reports them missing. And, and to find them in Stanley Park, our kind of iconic gem of a park, to find it's got this incredible dark side uh, and, you know, was this unsolved murder that's been going on for so many decades. And, uh, so, yeah, when, when I first did um, Cold Case Vancouver, I'd always, you know, been really obsessed about this case, but I thought, oh, it's too well known. You know, I, I really want to do a book about cases that, that just no one's ever heard of, that have just been forgotten about over the years. And and this one clearly everyone remembers. And then I started researching. I found there really wasn't much about it at all. Um, Timothy Taylor had done a fictional account in his book, Stanley Park, but there wasn't anything that really, you know, got to the nuts and the bolts of the story and talked to detectives and that sort of thing. And, and so that's what I ended up doing. For, for this case and you know of course it followed as genetic genealogy came on the scene sort of followed that really carefully uh hoping something would happen and um you know talking to the bugging the coroners and detectives and things and and i know that they didn't have a lot of hope because basically all they had left were fragments of bone and you know they were over 70 years old they'd been out in the elements for years and years so the chances of getting a DNA profile to put through GEDmatch, the uh, American database that's been so successful in solving these murders and missing persons cases, was was basically, you know, impossible, yet they did it. You know, technology advanced so much that they were able to, to get that profile. From one of the boys, to my knowledge, they still haven't got anything from the younger boy. So I'm hoping that will happen and that we'll be able to find out who his father is and, mm. and maybe get some information on the fathers. We still don't know who they are. They might tell us more. Yeah. Yeah, It's that's what, one of the things that really like struck me as I was reading the book was just that the the evolution of how cases are investigated, especially with evidence and even like the care that has been taken with a crime scene over time, like, you know, from like people tra trampling all over a crime scene to now it's like, you know, no one goes in without gloves and booties and the works. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see just like the evolution of how a crime is investigated. Well, this one, of course, you know, back in the 50s, they threw the bones and, you know, all the evidence in a, you know, a box and took a couple of photos. I think there were three that I've found and hauled them all off to, to the morgue. And there was very little done. They, they decided on that the date of death by counting the leaves, the layers of leaves. And it, it turned out it was surprisingly accurate to, yeah. to everyone's surprise, I think, that they had been there about five years. Yeah. yeah. So this is a cold case BC. Obviously, there, like you mentioned in the introduction to the book, there are so many cold cases in this province. How did you narrow down the stories that you wanted to include in the book? Uh, well, within cold case BC, a lot of them came to me. And, and just to back up there a bit, when after I'd written cold case Vancouver, I really dig into the stories of the victims, and, and that um, means that I have to get close to the families. And, and work with them, uh, ideally, and work with the friends and, and work with the detectives that 
um, solved the, the or didn't solve the cases, but it's, you know, that cliche that they've always got one that keeps them up at night is, is pretty well accurate from what I can find out. But it just seemed weird to just walk away. You know, suddenly I'm talking about these cases that no one's, you know, heard of for 40, 50, in one case, 70 years, except the families. It's still, you know, they're, they're like enclosure. And I didn't want to just walk away. I wanted to start something where people could gather. And I ended up studying a, at that time, it was called Cold Case Vancouver Facebook page, just really where I could remember them and people could come as a kind of a memorial and in a really great situation you know, where someone might, you know, bring forward more information that uh, might help police. And uh, anyway, that ended up mushering into a, a group page called Cold Case Beast, uh, Cold Case Canada is a group page. And a lot of times people would just come to me with these cases. And again, I had nowhere to put them. And and really, you know, when I say a lot of these cases chose me, I really kind of mean that because they I, I found out about them for the first time on my Facebook page and, and connected with the families and and people through that. So you know, Brenda Byman was one that the family connected. Uh, a police detective called me about Philip Porter, a little boy who was kidnapped, actually, from his home in Kimberley in the 60s. And um, uh, Lindsay Nichols, a 14-year-old missing girl. And, you know, things that the families, in most cases, try very, very hard to keep, you know, their loved ones in the media with the hope that, you know, information will come forward or police will, you know, keep investigating. So this helps a little bit with that. And the fact with the cold case BC, all the cases, or the, the most recent case was 1996, missing persons, but the rest of them all came before DNA, the unsolved murders. So in that time before the 90s, um, police weren't too careful with a lot of the evidence. A lot of it was just thrown out or it's contaminated or lost. So there's just no DNA to test. We're not going to solve them through genetic genealogy yeah. and these, you know, magic miracles basically we're seeing in the States. It's not going to happen. Um, the only way that it's going to happen is if we keep talking about them, someone comes forward and, you know, deathbed confession or, or something like that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the it seems like this Facebook group and, and you've really like kind of leaned on public support uh, mm. to to tell these stories, because as you mentioned in the uh, introduction to the book, the RCMP are not always forthcoming with the information you need. Um, so maybe could you talk a little bit about the challenges of working with the RCMP to tell these stories, but also like what it's been like to build these relationships with families and community and I know like we always hear about that there's community mm. sleuths out there there's whole websites where people are trying to solve crimes who aren't yeah. police uh people so you know just those two sides of it where you've got the official you know the RCMP who are supposed to be doing their job but now it's actually it like we saw with the Golden State Killer it was it was people just normal people with a passion mm. for this work um doing it yeah, there's, it's a real problem researching cases in, in the sense that there's a total lack of transparency coming from the RCMP and the VPD and, you know, and many of the other police forces. And I think it's very easy for them to say, oh, it's an unsolved murder, we can't talk about it. And I think, you know, a current example is Chelsea, Chelsea Poorman. And I just put up a blog, po uh, blog post on my um, uh, cold case Facebook page about her this week, uh, September 
first week of September in 2022, uh, she went missing. Family never saw her again. And then her remains turned up almost two years later in this property in Shaughnessy. And the family had been trying to, to get answers for ages. And the police say, you know, they originally came out with a press conference and said, cause of death is undetermined, but we don't believe it's a homicide. And the family were, well, how can you say that? How can you say that, you know, this isn't a homicide if you don't know how she died? Yeah. Um, and it's been ongoing. And the Tahi just came out with a really good article a couple of weeks ago where the family put in, filed a freedom of information request and the Tahi online um, news magazine uh, also filed a freedom of information request and both got turned down. And, you know, I, I just find this really this whole lack of transparency with, you know, it's one thing with the media, with people like me and true crime podcasters that are everywhere, but it's a different story with the family that that just can't, can you imagine the frustration of not being able to get information? And this particular investigation was handed over to the RCMP to do a report on how the VPD investigated. And that's not being released because it might hinder the investigation. And it just seems like a crock, quite frankly. You know, none of us, or at least in my case, I don't want hold back evidence that might affect investigation. No one wants to see that. We want to see these cases solved and, you know, these people found. But there's a lot of information that they can give out about these victims and and it, the, the whole background of the, the crime that, that could actually help, I think. And, you know, you've seen in the States, as you mentioned, that groups are taking over. We've got groups in Canada that are very highly skilled, you know, PhDs and criminology departments across the country that would love to jump in and help if they were given an opportunity. And to me, you know, when I filed an FOI about a case in the 50s and being rejected because, you know, it's unsolved, sorry, we can't, you know, but we know that they're not being investigated, a lot of these cases. They're sitting in banker boxes all over the province and gathering dust and no one's picked them up for years. And it's just very, very frustrating. I, I just like to see them, you know, be forced to to talk more about, you know, give out more details. And the RCMP particularly, you know, hiding behind this kind of, you know, we are a brand thing just um, drives me insane. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I, I think like you, uh, you touch on that, some of the highway of tears and the missing and murdered mm. indigenous women and girls in the book. And, and that's another example where there's been, you know, a lot of a lack of transparency that that real like, you know, RCMP not working with families or when they do show up, it's like in a very like, adversarial kind of role mm -hmm. um so it is it's an and especially at this time i think in where we are in our culture and society to be having these conversations about the way that police and and you know how they are accountable to the communities they serve that's important to talk about well, I think especially with Indigenous people, they have a justifiable fear of the RCMP. And, you know, I've written about that a little bit in Cold Case PC about, you know, the judge, Judge David Ramsey, who, um, you know, went about molesting and sexually assaulting 12-year-olds, you know, that he looked out over in court and knew um, for years, for 10 years, maybe more, the RCMP officers that, that have assaulted teenagers and just got off. Yeah. You know, you look at that and think, well, how can they trust the RCMP in this, you know, 
you buy into this whole lack of transparency and you can absolutely see why. So there's not, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the Indigenous people have come through the site and come to me um, just because they don't want to, you know, they have got information, but they don't want to contact the RCMP. It's a really big, big problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the challenge of dealing with time with these stories because, it, in a sense, they almost take on like urban legend type qualities. Uh, you know, an example that I thought of was the Brenda Byman story, where you know the town becomes divided. There's two stories of the truth, and and I I guess this kind of goes into the lack of transparency when people aren't given any kind of information, they just fill in the gaps themselves. But what's that like for you as a, an investigative writer where you're trying to parse out what's true and what's just been created in time? A lot of it, you know, I'll go back to the original newspaper clippings and, and start there. If we're talking about sort of an unsolved murder, a lot of times I can get a hold of an inquest and and just get information that, that wasn't out at the time. So, uh, you know, I can generally look. Um, I can often get hold of the retired homicide detectives who will talk and are happy to talk and want to talk um, about this so I can get that side and, and, you know, I'll often using that and using information from the family, you know, can often get the best case scenario. Um, Brenda Byman case was just wild. As a lot of these early cases were, you know, this was 1961. It wasn't investigated at all um, initially. As a missing persons, it was they went after the wrong people and just got tunnel vision, and that went on and for for decades. And I've seen that happen over and over again, where they, you know, thought it was someone that, and, and really haven't done a proper investigation, or with missing people particularly, and that's gone through to the nineties. And um, you know, they'll just say, "Oh no, she's a teenager, she's run away," mm. and they don't do anything. And you know, as you know from all the TV shows, which is quite true, you know, the first 24, 48 hours is crucial. So they're not looking for someone for three weeks. Um, they're missing out a huge amount of information and and probably, you know, it, it's so detrimental to, to solving the case. But the Brenda Byman one was so fascinating because the family had contacted me and asked me to put up a post on the anniversary of um, the day she went missing, which I was happy to do and, and do that quite frequently and am very happy to do that. And uh, I looked up a few newspaper clippings from the time. And when it's a, a Facebook post, I don't do a lot. I don't have time, basically, to do a huge amount of research. So I just looked up a couple of newspaper reports from around there, from the Globe and Mail and National Post. And it talked about how these other teenagers that were last seen with Brenda were suspects and had never been interviewed and all this sort of stuff. And, and I'd blindly written that. And then I got these incredible, you know, comments and nasty messages saying, you know, fake news and you're doing all this and, you know, you're wrong. And and so I got hold of these people, the, the families of the teenagers and one of the teenagers that was concerned and, and heard their side of the story and started to really dig deep and realise their story had never been told. They'd been blamed for, for her disappearance and possibly her murder. Like literally the family of Brenda think that they killed these kids, killed her, and the parents covered it up. The, the kids that were with her, which of course now are in the 70s, there's only one still alive now, um, think her father murdered her and buried her on the property and have actually done excavations in the last couple of years. This has been going on for 60-odd years. And um, the police think that, you know, she wandered off and animals got her and, and disappeared. Well, 
we don't know what happened. Um, but I, I just found it a fascinating, fascinating story about how something like this affects a community, divides it, rips it apart. After all this time, this it's still fresh with these people. It just doesn't go away. Yeah, yeah. It it just uh, yeah, it's so heartbreaking for the the families and the people because with no answers, and you know, you were talking about the Chase, Chelsea Pullman case. It's like undetermined. It's just like how do you live with that kind of uncertainty for for years? It's just it's just heartbreaking and you can see the lengths that people go to to try and get any kind of answer to what's going on yeah yeah the the other thing that i was struck by is the uh the the welcome ghouls the whole the hoax i i that picture that uh is in the book but it also just kind of i think made me think of our our current how interested people are in true crime. There's something about crime. There's mm. something about a, a good mystery that really captures our imagination and our interest. Mm. Um, what do you think it is about cold cases in particular, but maybe true crime in a larger sense that interests us in such a deep way? Well, I think in some ways it's a way of getting control over it to, to learn everything we can about it and, and see what happens. And, yeah, it's it is interesting. I've thought about that. And I get asked that a lot. Now I'm really not sure. I, I guess you know, for me, when I think about it, it's I'm just fascinated with everything that goes into the investigation. Um, I'm so excited about the forensics, how they're changing and, and solving cases south of the border. They're not we're not you know using it very much here at all, unfortunately. But I mean, I think that's incredible what that's doing. Um, things like phenotyping, where you can take DNA from a crime scene and get an image of a person. And even if that image isn't completely accurate, you're finding out things like, okay, this is a Swede with, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes. So obviously we can now knock out all those suspects that are black or Asian or Jewish or, you know, as it goes on. It's a phenomenal tool. And and now with this genetic genealogy that we're finding out things. So, I mean, to me, that really fascinates me. But it also fascinates me going back in time decades ago, how these dogged detectives, you know, with their footwork did solve murders and did get close to it. And a lot of these unsolved murders are actually solved. Uh, they're called resolved, I guess, because the police know who did it. They just can't prove it or in BC, and it's a huge problem, um, the Crown is responsible for, for laying charges. And I think we're seeing this on the news all the time with this catch and release. You know, some guy goes, knocks over all these jewellery stores and then gets let out the next day to do it over and over and over again. But this is the Crown. So the police, is, as much as they'd like to get a trial going and, and put a suspect in front of a jury, if the Crown thinks they're not going to get a case, if the guy's already in jail, say, for something else, if he's dead, which has happened in a number of cases, they just say, oh, we're going to keep it unsolved and, and close. But the family never get any closure, even if they're told. Um, a recent one that's not in the book is the Alley Murders. And uh, was, again, through my Facebook page, I was putting posts up about sex workers who had been murdered in the late 80s. And um, had never been solved, and two of them had been placed on the Vancouver Police Department's cold case website you know, last year, so really recently. 
And a detective that worked on the case, Alex, had said, I don't understand why they're on there. We solved this case. It was part of a task force in, you know, 2007. And the guy died. Like, why are they putting up these people as unsolved? And Anyway, long story, but it was a fascinating one to do. I talked to two detectives, one that had worked on the original murders and the task force. It was a joint RCMP VPD task force who had followed these guys. And they went into huge detail in, in the podcast. It's called The Alley Murders, um, just talking about how they'd got the serial killer who'd killed definitely four, maybe you know six of the sex trade workers. And... Um, and here they are marked as unsolved. The families had never been told. The family, I worked with a sister, a foster sister, actually, one of the, the victims, Lisa Gavin, and she'd never been given any information, even though every year she, you know, would ring police and say, you know, what's going on? And they say, oh, we're still investigating. And, you know, when they put up her sister on the cold case site, she got really excited that they were going to reopen and reinvestigate, but nothing. And then when she found out through the podcast, through the detectives, that they'd got this killer, that this killer that she'd thought had been walk, walking around for 30 years was actually dead and they knew who it was. I mean, she said to me, it was it was really heartbreaking. Now, finally, my family can get some closure. Yeah. Now, the police could have done this at any time and, and just chose not to. And these two cases are still up on the cold case website. And it's, it's just, to me, it's unbelievable. I don't understand why they're there. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's, it, I mean, and that's what's so, I think, like you said, that's what's maybe most interesting about, about true crime and about the books that you write is, I, I think we all have different, maybe inaccurate ideas of how law and order works because of shows like law and yeah. order um and so solved we, in 45 minutes exactly <laughs> from from investigation to a verdict all in 45 minutes um but I think, you know, the more we understand how it all works, it, it helps, you know, I think that's what we all want to know is just yeah. how does this actually work? Like, you know, what it does happen in a real investigation and and the reality of it is it's quite unsatisfying sometimes what actually happens. But I also, as well as putting unsolved murders and missing persons cases in the book, I also really wanted to work on cold cases that were solved. Mm -hmm. Because for that reason, I mean, it sounds like I'm totally anti-police, and I'm not. I think in many, many cases they do a fantastic job um, with under-resourced and, and whatnot. Um, but I wanted to follow cases and to be able to follow the investigation because they could talk to me. Uh, because I was solved and, and just really look at the, the work that goes into these cases. And, you know, they were fascinating. Two were solved by Mr. Big Cases, and that's the RCMP kind of sting, where it's such an elaborate thing when they put together this, it's a whole like a, a movie cast uh, to get this criminal suspect to to believe he's part of this criminal organisation and, and confess. And it's been incredibly successful. Um it's got a few um, critics, of course, but, you know, I think when it's done properly and, and there are a lot of um, things in place to make sure it is, uh, it, these cases wouldn't have been solved otherwise. And, and one was, um, I've written about her case, Monica Jack. She was a 12-year-old who was abducted from her bike riding down the highway in Merritt in 1978. And um, they didn't find her remains for another 17 years. And even though they had this suspect, you know, right from the beginning, Gary Handlin, it took them 40 years to actually indict him for her murder and uh, uh, for 
he was and again another problem because they had him for her murder they dropped charges against another little girl so her family you know left to wonder well did he do it didn't he do it all we know is that he's finally behind bars but you know he was left for decades to, to wander around while these girls and who knows how many others were were raped and murdered um during that time but they got him through mr big so so that was great and of course, you know, this genetic genealogy, which has been solving um, a lot of cases. It was interesting to do the, the two teenagers, Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kullenberg from Saanich, that went down to Washington State and were brutally murdered. Um, Tanya was raped and shot in the head. It was horrible. Uh, never had any leads at all until genetic genealogy, uh, because fortunately they did have the killer's DNA. And um, Sissy Moore was able to find out the, the killer in, in four hours. I mean, it's yeah. insane how amazing that was. And But I think one of the disturbing things that came out from talking to her about her work uh, for me was that she's found what they're calling one and done. It's killers like this um, uh, William Talbot, who was finally you know indicted for, for the teenagers' murders, that have never done anything before or after. So they've basically been young men in their early 20s that committed these horrific crimes and uh, just gone on with their life. Could be a next door neighbour with a couple of kids and would never, never come up on the radar or, or be caught except for this genetic genealogy. So, you know, that, that's a frightening thing because it goes against everything we think of, you know, killers, you know, that they had to work up to it yeah. and then all be doing. And they always thought that whoever killed it was so vicious that, you know, it was a criminal and been in jail and they would eventually get a hit. Yeah. Um, but never, never did and, and wouldn't likely never would have. Yeah. Yeah. The, I forget what it was, but wasn't there was like hundreds of suspects and the, the yeah. William Talbot wasn't even close to the list. Well, it's not. I, I don't yeah. think he was even on the list at all. So, yeah, yeah never came up on anyone's radar. Yeah. So, so strange. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that about the Golden State Killer too, because like that was another one where he was just living his his life and wasn't. I don't even think he was a suspect at any point. And he was a former cop, yeah. which is just terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like I said at the beginning, it's amazing to see how far we've come in in how we can investigate and process evidence for these crimes. My last question for you is: How do you? I mean, you you write about this again a little bit in the introduction, but you know that the the hardest part about these crimes is, I mean, they're all hard, but the the kids, like these are often little children. Um, we see Casey, like that case is just heart wrenching. These these mm. small children, the babes in the woods. How do you kind of process that? those feelings in the day-to-day -day, like or or do you just kind of sit with those feelings and and recognize like this is hard work that you're doing yeah uh, they're definitely the hardest ones to do uh, but but I think you know I was a reporter for decades and I, I think you, you learn to compartmentalize a lot and you know I'd report about things when I was working with Vancouver Sun back in the 90s that, that I wouldn't read as a mother I couldn't yeah. read but you'd go out and you report on them. And I think maybe I'd have to talk to paramedics or um, police officers, first, first responders, but I imagine it's something like that. You just have to get on with the job. It, it's not, you know, something that you, you hear about them joking at crime scenes and things. And I totally get that. 
as a way to just get rid of that horror. Now, I don't see them. So for me, you know, I'm sitting behind a computer or talking to to family, which is heart-wrenching, but I'm not dealing with the actual crime scenes or anything. Thank God. I don't know how they do it. Um, Heart goes out to them. Yeah, and and, I mean, in the book too, we do see a little bit of those like long-term repercussions. It was the Monica Jacks, uh, I forget the detective's name. Was it Martin, Detective Martin? Um, Martin Nichols. Martin Nichols, because his daughter ends up being going missing, which was just like heartbreaking. And and you see him engaging with, you know, his PTSD and what happened in the fallout of of his engaging with the Monica Jacks murder. That was a very strange one to find when, you know, I was talking to him to find out that he'd actually investigated Monica Jack. And he didn't actually investigate. He was the first responder. He was a very young police officer at that time. And he was the first on the scene and did the initial measurements and talk to the mother initially and stuff like that. But but then to, you know, lose his own daughter 15 years later in, um, well, I guess she was walking down a road the last time she was ever seen, it was probably hitchhiking. So it was a different sort of scenario, but it must have felt very similar to him. And he was very open. Like I, I had a lot of respect for that because uh, he was very open to me on the podcast as well, um, talking about things that he should have done differently, he felt. Uh, he really took a back seat on that investigation and felt that it wasn't appropriate for him to be, you know, talk, asking about his daughter's disappearance and as uh, an effect of that, I mean, no one really looked for her for weeks. It was back in this, oh, she's run away before she's 14. And um, her, her mother's been amazing, though, just, you know, keeping Lindsay in the, the light. They've just done a campaign up there in Comox Courtney with billboards, again, saying, you know, please get in touch with information. Because, again, she's just disappeared. There was no trace of her, no no reports, yeah, nothing. Um, you know, there's always a possibility she's still alive. Same with Casey Bowen. Yeah. Same with all of them, really. If you haven't found anything to yeah. suggest otherwise, there's always that slim possibility. So I kind of hope, you know, it, it was someone like Casey Bowen who was only three, and, and there's definitely a possibility that she was sold um, to a family, that, that she's just had this Disneyland lovely existence and she'll put a DNA in one day and actually be found. Yeah. Uh, but that's a really interesting one because there's been at least four young women that have thought that they were Casey and have had their DNA tested. Yeah. So I remember that even a few years ago with, wasn't there someone had come forward thinking they were Michael Donahue too, which, I mean, that's always, because I was, the, I'm the same age, as, I think as, Michael Dunahee would be like that was and I grew up in Victoria and so I remember that very clearly and how much that kind of like changed how my parents watched my sister and I and but I think I remember that like a few years ago because as you mentioned in the book like his family has been quite engaged in like making sure there's those images out there of what Michael would look like now Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember that a few years ago where they thought someone had come forward thinking they were Michael Dunahee. But it's interesting in the book too because there is a case where you know the, the it turns out the person is the the I forget the mother's name now but she you know she is fine and she's living her life and she's right. happy and like you know so I guess it, it strange strange things do happen and you mm-hmm. know we never really know what Well some people you know intend to go missing and that's yeah. their right and that's why I like to deal on Facebook particularly with old cases 
Because, you know, if someone is fleeing a domestic relationship or just wants to get away, yeah. uh, I don't want to be putting their face all over social media. I mean, that's their right to do it. And what I'm sorry, going to say about Michael Dunner here and forgot, I mean, it just goes to show you how rare stranger abduction is yeah. when we remember him. I mean, his face is imprinted on my brain as well. And I hadn't been in Canada all that long uh, when he went missing. But I think that's that's the the one good thing about it. You know, we think when something like this happens, it's so traumatic and so horrible, um, but it's also so rare. Yeah, it's so rare. I don't know if you're talking about it, but do you want to talk about the book that you are you are working on? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. No, I'm really excited <laughs> about it. Actually, it's something I've been uh, doing for several years on and off, and it's about the Empress of Ireland. And the Empress of Ireland was a CPR ship that sank in the St. Lawrence River in 1914. Have you heard of it? No. Okay, pretty much every, every time I ask that, and I've asked this when I've done talks to the Vancouver Historical Society, and I've had 80 people in the audience, I've said, hands up, who's heard of the sinking of the Empress of Ireland? You know, one hand will go up. <laughs> but it's this incredible story. It's a Canadian story. More passengers died that night than it died on the Titanic. Yet, as, you know, everyone knows about the Titanic. No one's heard of Empress of Ireland. And it sank in 14 minutes. And uh, I got, um, years ago, I got hired by a New York lawyer to research the story of one of the survivors. For, and he was from Vancouver. And the story went that he swam to shore. And Hugh, the lawyer, had talked to everyone, polarised swimmers, divers, everyone, to see if that was possible. And everyone told him no. And, and my job was to just see if I could find his actual account of how he survived. And and I did in the end, took a long time. And and it was completely wrong. The, the story that's been going out for 100 plus years in newspaper articles and repeated in books in, in various elaborations was wrong. And I thought, wow, I wonder how many other stories are wrong. And so I started looking into it. And there are so many, so many wrong stories. And I just, you know, such a huge Western Canadian story. So many people came from Vancouver and Winnipeg and Manitoba and Alberta. And, you know, so few of them returned. And so I've started, you know, tracing the survivor stories. And a couple of years ago, 2019, Hugh had hired a, a Zodiac to take us out to the wreck site. And it was an incredible feeling because there's still a couple of hundred people entombed in this wreck. Wow. And the St. Lawrence River, I'd never been there before to that part. It's Ramouski, about three hours out of Quebec City. And it's 50 kilometres wide. And the Empress went down, was hit by a collier and went down right in the middle. It's only about 45 metres down, but it was lost for about 50 years. And uh, even, you know, since divers have been going down there, it's so treacherous that about, uh, I think, seven or eight divers have been killed oh, wow. uh, looking for, for stuff. and But it's just a huge, what, what I want to write is the social history of it, you know, what happened to these people, why it should matter. Um, there's been books done about the actual wreck and the technicalities of that. and But, you know, there's also the whole story about the Storstad, that was the steamer that, that ran into the Empress and, and caused it to sink because of the, the prow from ice cutting sort of just, cut it yeah. in pieces and um they were quite heroes though they rescued so many of the survivors from from the water that night but there's nothing ever mentioned about them and so i've got hold of the grandson who's got a lot of information in, in oslo and working with him just to get the story because the cpr found that the empress was you know in the right 
in an inquiry and the Norwegians found that the store stat was in the right in their inquiry. Um, so it's just fascinating to me. So I really want to tell, you know, both sides of the story and, and just to get as much factual information out there. And, you know, these stories about, you, know, you hear stories that were on the front page of these, you know, huge newspapers saying how foreigners, any anyone that wasn't, you know, white Anglo-Saxon was called a foreigner. Yeah. And I guess it was three months before World War One, so you can see there'd be a lot of xenophobia and stuff going on. But there were things like they clawed their way to the decks by knifing people in front of them. And, like, it's just so, you know, these pictures would be of these, you know, fangs and knives. and It's so ridiculous. But this was on the front page of, you know, major, major newspapers around the world. And so it's been interesting for me to say, well, no, this didn't happen and this is why. And, you know, so it's a lot of fun working on this book. That was Eve Lazarus. Eve is the author of Cold Case BC, the stories behind the police's most intriguing murder and missing persons cases, which is a finalist for the 2023 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.